This is Guns and Butter. So if we can just get Cuba back, they're not going to get rid of, of Kennedy. They're going to be fighting over Cuba. They're going to be dividing Cuba among themselves. So this is how I was persuaded that it was a good idea to kill Castro. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Judith Ferry Baker. Today's show, the cancer bioweapon and plot to kill JFK. Judith Ferry Baker is an author, teacher, and an artist. She is the author of two nonfiction personal memoirs, Me and Lee, How I Came to Know, Love, and Lose, Lee Harvey Oswald, and David Ferry, Mafia Pilot, Participant in Anti-Castro Bioweapon Plot, Friend of Lee Harvey Oswald, and Key to the JFK Assassination. She was once a promising young science prodigy who hoped one day to find a cure for cancer. She offers extensive documentation on how she came to be a cancer expert at such a young age, the personalities who urged her to relocate to New Orleans, and what led to her involvement in the development of a biological weapon that Oswald was to smuggle into Cuba to eliminate Fidel Castro. Early on in the summer of 1963, during her work in New Orleans, she learned of plans to kill the president. Judith Ferry Baker, welcome. Hello, Bonnie. Nice to hear you. It's such a pleasure to finally meet you. I only wish it was in person. Judith, I think we should start with a brief history of how you were brought to New Orleans in April of 1963 to develop a fast-acting cancer bioweapon to be used to assassinate Fidel Castro. I did a two-part program with Ed Haslam, author of Dr. Mary's Monkey, in which he talked quite a bit about you on the show, but there are bound to be many listeners who did not catch those programs. You were a young high school science prodigy, weren't you? Well, and yes, but a lot of people think like I went straight to New Orleans from high school, Actually, I had two years of training in advanced methods, you know, working in oncological methods. You're talking about tissue culture. Um, I actually developed a test to determine whether someone had cancer just using a blood test. And, by the way, it took 46 years before they created a similar blood test. So when I was removed or kicked out of cancer research because of objecting to using prisoners, you know, who were unaware that when they volunteered to, you know, work and, you know, be volunteers in cancer research, that if the materials we injected into them uh, proved effective, they would die. <laughs> you know, so uh, I really regret the, the fact that I have been was banned from cancer research by the same organization that gave me so much hope and promised me, you know, Early entry into Tulane University Medical School, you know, would skip two years of college. Uh, that'd be working with the eminent doctors and especially Dr. Mary Sherman. Uh, have free room and board and a stipend and all that. And it looked like everything was just so wonderful to be able to come to New Orleans. And of course, I'd been trained at Roswell Park Institute to handle the deadly uh, viruses uh, that could cause cancer, such as SB40 monkey virus, with Dr. James T. Grace. Uh, in a summer program there with, under Dr. Moran just for seminars. And I was working in particular in uh, that entire summer for Dr. George E. Moore. He was the director of that institute, which was a very um, highly recognized 
Cancer Research Institute is now called Roswell Park Institute. That, right then it was called Roswell Park Memorial Institute for Cancer Research. And what's important about that is that I learned how to also formulate one of the best formulas. And I say formulate because we were still working on it. The formula that we were working on that would allow us to grow cancer cells faster than ever before and more efficiently keep them alive longer Today it's called RPMI, that is Roswell Park Memorial Institute, RPMI 1640. And this formula uh, came out a few years after I was there, but we were working in uh, Dr. Moore's own private lab creating this. So I spent some time actually helping to create this formula in 1961. And at the time that I reached New Orleans, I was probably one of the few people in the world that had access to that formula outside of the Institute. So I had some special skills that were uh, valuable, plus the fact I could read 2,400 words a minute, and they needed to get a lot of the latest uh, research updated to see where they could go next. They had reached an impasse in this uh, project, which had begun on March 23, 1962. Dr. Oxner, of course, had been lured into oh, hey, we have something here that could be called a biological weapon. Uh, it was an anomaly, and uh, they took advantage of it. Uh, Dr. Oxner was uh, virulently anti-Castro and anti-communist. He resented the fact that Castro had cut off Cuba from all the training of, of uh, young doctors that he had uh, conducted. They would come there and stay at, at Brent House as they did from all over South America and Latin America in general. All of a sudden, he had no more access to them. And I'm going to tell you, their parents weren't happy about that either, and some of them were doctors. I mean, their young men were being shipped off now to USSR for training. We'd come back, and, and they uh, put them on salaries and sent them out to take care of the peasants and so on. Uh, there's one example of a doctor, a young doctor, who was very resentful and trusted, uh, who had wanted to become a famous and rich plastic surgeon <laughs> and my joke is that now instead he's working on taking uh, you know ingrown toenails out of people <laughs> you know so um, there was some resentment there Dr. Oxner had trusted the medical community himself he understood what trust was because of course he had inoculated his own grandson uh, it's widely said that his grandson died within just a few days actually his grandson came down with uh, he was inoculated with the polio vaccine by Dr. Oxner, his own grandson. He became ill in a couple of days. He died a week later. And this devastated Dr. Oxner, who had trusted the Cutter vaccine in which he had stock. And he realized if he could trust doctors that much with something that could be injected into your body, so would Castro. And believe it or not, some of the doctors that Castro trusted shouldn't have been trusted. And there were, there were uh, also technicians. If you have a little bottle and look, it's labeled penicillin, but it really contains virulent active cancer cells that uh, could kill you, how would you know? So uh, what if someone, a technician, turns up the x-ray machine really high when Castor was standing in front of it on his checkup, which was coming up? Um, how would you know it? And it wouldn't have been turned up so he got a huge dose. And then what if certain cancer cells were placed in a blood sample 
and they're looking at the microscope and they see live cancer cells in this blood sample, they're going to put him in front of an X-ray uh, again machine to see if there's are any tumors. And when he gets a full body scan like that, he's going to be, you know, he's going to be inundated with a lot of more X-rays. You can imagine what the plan was, and there were people in line to do it. Why such an elaborate scheme? Because everything they tried, I mean, look, Castro's still alive. They, CIA had tried everything. So this was a long-term project, and um, somewhere during the project it was learned, uh, we learned it was a little too late, but we learned that um, the decision had been made to kill Kennedy, and it seemed to Dr. Sherman and, and David Ferry and others, David Ferry, by the way, pretended to be um, anti-Kennedy. He changed his mind after he, uh, it's a long story, I'm going to talk about it some other time, but basically David Ferry was someone who knew Lee Oswald for a long time. My book, David Ferry, Mafia Pilot, explains who he is, and of course he's in the film JFK. You can see his representation by Joe Pesci. However you pronounce his name. <laughs> anyway, um, David Ferry actually um, was very uh, anti-Castro, anti-communist, and he was for some period of time anti-Kennedy because he blamed Kennedy for what happened at the Bay of Pigs. He had trained so many of these young uh, people, and some of them actually died. One of them suffocated to death, Dave told me, in a container that was left out in the sun of like over 100 people in it or 90 people, something like that, and um, they were prisoners, and they were being hauled, you know, into a camp somewhere, and a number of them suffocated to death and died of heat stroke and so on when they opened up the container. I mean, they baked them in there, and David didn't forget that, and he was certain that Kennedy, he really stood up there in front of 70 officers, retired military officers. He was a gifted um, speaker and rhetorician, and he said Kennedy should be shot. Well, they made him get off the stage, but they said, look, Dave, come here. We want to talk to you. We feel the same way about Kennedy. Would you like to learn a little more? Do you really feel like that? And, of course, he did at the time. Later, David Ferry learned that it wasn't Kennedy who was to blame for all of that. It was his treacherous generals, treacherous CIA. And now when he understood, he was deep into where talks were going on, and some of them, a few of them, were serious. And that's the background here. When I came to New Orleans, David Ferry secretly now realizes that uh, uh, President Kennedy is in deep trouble. He has learned about some groups that want to kill him. He believes and tells Dr. Mary Sherman, if we can't kill Castro and divert these ideas from uh, developing into something more dangerous, it was already known that Kennedy would be coming to Texas. You had... Albert Thomas was supposedly quite ill. He's in Houston, and uh, he had been a congressman or had just retired, or maybe he still was, but he'd soon leave the position. And Albert Thomas, uh, they were going to hold a, a dinner for him, a, a kind of a, you know, thank you. Thank you, Albert, for being our wonderful congressman. And he, like he's going to retire or something like that. Kennedy, that's how he was invited to Texas. And it turned into something else. But we have a famous photo showing Lyndon Johnson, soon after he's sworn in, right there on Air Force One, turning his head, 
Lady Bird is smiling in her kind of a grim smile. Jackie Kennedy is looking like she has just been dragged through the the plumes of the fires of hell, standing there at his side. And he's looking over at Albert Thomas, who's giving a wink. He's winking at Lyndon Johnson. Now, that was what we were trying to avoid. I was led to believe I got on the secret side of things accidentally. Originally, I was supposed to work with Dr. Sherman um, in her regular bone lab, and, and they would be giving me materials, and I would be uh, working on them there. But as it turned out, David Ferry had been selected to break the ring. There was a ring of labs that was involved, at least three or four labs. And the problem was is they could communicate with each other if the ring was completed. David was chosen because Mary Sherman had been training him. David had been in cancer research as an amateur, but he was a brilliant man. Great pilot, knew five languages fluently that he spoke, French, German, Italian, Spanish, and English. And besides that, he knew ancient Greek, modern uh, Greek, and uh, Latin, and so on. Uh, this man, again, a gifted speaker and able to speak in many languages, and was actually a pilot at that time going between New Orleans and cities such as Dallas and Houston on a regular route with Eastern Airlines. Now, by the time I met him, he had been fired by Eastern Airlines for an incident with a 15-year-old boy. Now, all of this comes together because David is now, uh, he, he was basically rescued by Carlos Marcello, the godfather of New Orleans, got him a job with, with uh, G. Ray Gill, and also he was working for Guy Bannister. We see that, that he was actually analyzing autopsies for Bannister. And in the book, David Ferry, again, you're going to find out a lot more about that and how he learned to analyze autopsies. But all of this comes together that David has some medical information and understanding, and he understands especially how to handle cancer. And that's not for everybody. Not everybody can do that. And he was chosen by Dr. Sherman, and she gave him some training so that he would be able to handle this virus, this very powerful cancer that had been developed using a linear particle accelerator to create mutations. And some of the mutations, most of them, of course, are no good. When you're talking about using 500 mice at a time, 50 mice at a time, eventually it was 500 mice at a time. Then we went to monkeys, you see, finally to test humans. I'm speaking with author and former cancer researcher Judith Ferry Baker. Today's show the cancer bioweapon and plot to kill JFK. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. All of this I'm told that we can avoid World War III and maybe 20 million Americans won't die if we can make sure that Castro is out of the picture, will never again aim nuclear weapons at me and my family and everybody in you in Florida and at the United States of America and all the people there. This is what I was told. And when I came to New Orleans, I thought, again, I was going to be on the, on the uh, open side of everything. I didn't know what the nature of the project was. But through a series of circumstances, which involved Lee and his meeting me, because when I came to New Orleans, I came two weeks early, and there was nobody there. Nobody. Like my, I'm talking about my doctors were in South America. Now, we have a newspaper article about it. Uh, 
I don't know where exactly Mary Sherman was, but she was out of town as well. And here I was at loose ends. I'd expected steak and, and you know, and wine. I didn't drink wine, but you get the picture, I think. I thought I was going to be met by famous doctors. They were they were going to love me and take good care of me. They promised to do so, and I was going to work my tail off for them. I wanted to cure cancer. That was my goal. My grandma had died of it, and all the newspaper articles. I had newspaper reporters following me around because of all the um, – I had given – mice lung cancer in only seven days in my own primitive circumstances in Manatee High School, working in a, in a lab that was moved under the stadium because when those tumors started developing, we had some frightened <laughs> we had some frightened high school science teachers and others, you know, so we had two Nobel Prize winners. We had three um, doctors, the, the best there were, Dr. George Morgan, director of uh, at Roswell Park, we had Dr. Harold Deal, D-I-E-H-L, the vice president of the American Cancer Society, and who, in fact, was the head of all the research projects for the American Cancer Society. And then with him, Dr. Alton Oxner, who was flown in after I displayed and showed the uh, work that I had done, and, and uh, they wanted him to help inspect this. Of course, it was in the newspapers, you know, Judith meets with two Nobel Prize winners and all of this. And, and it says because I had done something that had never been done before, I was now going to be sent to Roswell Park and so on. Well, that went on uh, briefly about two years of training I received. And at the same time, of course, I'm going to college. I was estranged from my parents. My fiancé was supposed to be coming. When I was eventually banned from cancer research for, for testing about these prisoners being used, uh, I was sent back to, to uh, Florida to save my life. But also there, because I had married this man, I was Mrs. Robert Allison Baker III. It really, really helped to hide who I was. As everybody that worked on the project, almost all of them were murdered. So it's just, I say everybody I know who was working on the project. So that's where it was. And here's Lee Oswald. He's being sent to kind of... Um, make sure I don't get hurt. I'm an asset that they want to use. Because he wasn't told enough, and I knew so much about, well, like anti-casterites, I had been uh, working, uh, after all, in Florida. With I had dated, for example, the, the son of the finance minister of Castro's Cuba. It was Tony Lopez Frisquet. And, oh, he was a cute guy. He really was. But he told me nightmare things about Castro. So I, I really hated Castro, and here I was hating Kennedy. One of the things that Lee did over time was he taught me to admire and respect and even love President Kennedy. Just as I had in high school before I'd been influenced by all my anti-Castro Cuban friends at University of Florida. What a change, what a difference it was to, to know somebody like Lee who had such respect and admiration for our president. So I'll take a breath here and let you might have uh, wondered if I've taken you too far in too many directions here. Let's see what you think. Well, um, no, that's very interesting, Judith. Now, who whose uh, brainchild was the uh, fast-acting uh, cancer bioweapon? You sort of indicated that it was Dr. Yeah. Oshner's, uh project. 
Well, it seems that Dr. Ochsner had worked quite a while with Dr. Mary Sherman. She had gotten interested in polio uh, herself. She was she was an orthopedic surgeon. And she had to go over to Triple Children's Hospital all the time and, and do surgery on their legs to unbend them because the tendons would get all tight and they'd be all curled up. And she'd have to move the tendons on the bones. Sometimes they had to cut up one bone here or there so that it, it was um, twisted or whatever. And she saw all the suffering going on. She was very concerned. She and Dr. Ochsner were very concerned about the fact that this vaccine that was supposed to cure uh, polio and all that actually was giving people polio and killing them. When they inspected it and looked into it, they found the SV40 monkey virus, a completely different thing than what they were looking for. And basically, when they inspected the virus and wondered what it did, and at first wondered if that was what was causing the problems, uh, they began culturing it, and lo and behold, when they did tissue cultures with it, uh, cancer began to grow very rapidly. And they, uh, she had Sarah Stewart and uh, Sarah Eddie. We have these um, oncologists and research scientists that Dr. Sherman knew in Chicago, and she was in contact with them. Basically, it looks like Dr. Sherman was able to realize that we here we had something that uh, causes. Uh, cancers in uh, 100% of any uh, primates that were in- injected with it, what would it do in humans? That was a concern. And when she found out, as uh, they all did in 1963, we had 98 million doses of this material loaded with the SV40 cancer-causing monkey virus. And the government was hiding it. They had already had too many recalls already of you know contaminated polio vaccines. And the word came out. Well, look, we're going to cure cancer before this erupts in the human uh, population. Let's not worry about it. Let's eradicate polio. And besides, we'll lose an awful lot of money. And besides, people will be afraid of vaccines if we recall 98 million doses of it. So they gave it to us. Gave it to us. So, yeah, so Mary Sherman sees this. They were trying to work with this, the, the SV40 monkey virus. They found that it was it could create a, a rapidly uh, developing cancer. By the time I got in the project, they had a monstrous cancer. Uh, it, it was nothing like I'd ever seen before, and I'd seen a lot. And uh, this this was this was outrageous. The cancer uh, cells would divide and multiply so quickly, and it seemed that uh, they they overgrew themselves immediately. They just uh, went so quickly from stage to stage, and uh, Mary had actually uh, stopped them at different stages and um, labeled the times, and I could see how fast this could grow. It was frightening, and I was intrigued. She wanted me to see it. They talked to me about how um, I'd accidentally been brought into the wrong side because David had looked for, David Ferry had looked for an assistant, had asked for an assistant because his Eastern Airline hearings, trying to get his job back with Eastern Airlines, uh, they had him go to Miami a lot. And the other thing that was going on, um, which uh, was just as important as Carlos Marcello trusted him, he's just a genius, wanted him to, to uh, help him with his upcoming trial. And here David was all locked up in, in uh, trying to get this cancer thing done in his kitchen. And he had the ability, we had the ability uh, to do it there. It's not as complicated as you might think in certain areas. You need lots of acetone and lots of lots of um, Bunsen burner, you know, you've got to have fire and you have to have 
uh, means to clean up and keep it clean. And David Ferry's kitchen needed cleaning all the time. That was, <laughs> at any rate, here we have David Ferry has has been given this training. He's asked for an assistant. He thought I was the one because since he was a homosexual, that they wouldn't send a guy. And here I'm a girl coming in, so he accepted that. They told me a lot more than they should because the doctors were not in town. Mary Sherman then has to tell me the truth. She and Dr. Ochsner had decided they're very anti-Castro and they're very anti-communist that they thought it behooved them to take this material. Castro smoked cigars like a smokestack. And all this time, these three doctors, Dr. Deal, Dr. Moore, and Dr. Ochsner had gone all around and trying to discourage people from smoking. They had already, uh, even before the Surgeon General's stuff came out, I think in 65, we have these three doctors testifying in court that smoking cigarettes or cigars will give you cancer. Dr. Ochsner put out a book about it, and now the stage was ready. Castro needed to be eliminated for everybody's good. Uh, You see that Ochsner puts in the newspaper, he says, Doctors need to join the Cold War and, and uh, fight in the Cold War with every means they have. And he is doing so himself. So here we've got, he's got the idea. Let's keep it spread around that smoking causes cancer. Let it keep going. And here's Judy Vary, who has created lung cancer in mice faster than it had ever been done in any of the laboratories at that time. And I've got this training, and they bring me to New Orleans. And I also, I bring with me the formula that can grow these cancers even faster. So there you are. That's what happened to me. Then Lee Oswald, because I was at loose ends, and um, I didn't, I had very little money when I came here, and the auction was out of town. The clinic didn't know a thing about this, because the papers hadn't been signed yet. And so I, I was thrust into a room, well, it's the only room I could afford at the YWCA. I thought it was going to be moving into a nice private room like had been done with me before at the Y. Instead, I'm in with four girls, you know, two strippers, a Playboy bunny, and a waitress who was so tough, I had to give her 25 cents a day so she wouldn't steal my clothes. So, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. That was the situation, and uh, in just a week, I, I was there from about the 19th, arrived, 20th, 21st, 22nd, 23rd, 24th, 25th. I mean, something's got to be done. I've already now been in all the strippers, uh, you know, I've been in the show, the, <laughs> I've been in all these different clubs, nightclubs downtown, and the girls say, look, you're, you know, you're 19 years old, you mean you've never seen a pasty? <laughs> you know, and things like that, and and how about being a Playboy Bunny? Well, I ended up taking a, a job that was only two hours a day at Royal Castle, enough to pay for my room until the doctors got back. It didn't take any time at all to introduce me to David Ferry, and Lee did that. Uh, he was sent, obviously, to protect me and rescue me. I was an asset. And because of different circumstances you can read about in the book, they thought I knew a lot more about the project and that I was the person that they had requested to be on the secret side. And since I was a girl, it seemed I really fit the bill. And by the time the doctors got back, it was too late, and they had to put me in on the secret side of it. The secret side was very important because, as I say, it broke that ring, and it made it possible for the doctors not to be in communication with each other and figure out what was going on. 
So that, you know, nutshell, and that's, another, that's a big nut, isn't it? I'm speaking with author and former cancer researcher Judith Ferry Baker. Today's show, The Cancer Bioweapon and Plot to Kill JFK. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Anyway, that's the background and uh, where uh, it led to with the information that David Ferry had. He is telling Lee about it. Lee Oswald will get involved. Try not only uh, what he was doing there was making sure that spies, Castro spies, they, Castro knew there were efforts going to be made to try to kill him. Castro knew that in New Orleans, of all places, we had groups, whole groups of uh, anti-Castro insurgents who were being trained, trained to come in there and invade Cuba, trained some of them by David Ferry to go and drop bombs. And some of them were incendiary bombs, but others were like they're dropping biological weapons. I'm talking about, you know, pigs were getting sick. They had dengue fever. I mean, they were using biological means against the people of Cuba, not just Castro. But they're trying to destroy the entire island's productivity and got rid of almost all the sugarcane crops after the Bay of Pigs. I mean, they just kept bombing and bombing and bombing before and after. They've never taken responsibility. These were always, you know, bush planes that came in, boom, and there's the fire. There the fire is uh, raging. And uh, Castro is getting um, not much help. Khrushchev, if he gives him too much help, the United States uh, has a very, very bad relationship with the communist giant. And Khrushchev, you know, beating his shoe on the podium there, UN, we will bury you. That doesn't come across too well, you know. So there, it was a scary time. It was a time when only six months after the Cuban Missile Crisis, when we thought we came so close to the brink of war, if it hadn't been for the courage of John F. Kennedy and his brother, I don't think we'd be here. So those were the times. Now, one other question on cancer. In addition to the fast-acting cancer bioweapon project that you were a part of, were you ever aware of any uh, real research going on there uh, being done in New Orleans to either find a cure for cancer or to develop a cancer vaccine? Well, not just in New Orleans, but because I said, remember I said I read 2,400 words a minute, and they used that as an asset for me to digest. And people said, how can you read that fast? And I've I've tried to explain, for example, some people who don't read very well, it's T-H-E is the, you know, they have to look at each letter. Others can read the, and some can read the horse ran down the street. Some can read a whole sentence. I could read a page like that, and it was very useful. Now, it took a lot of strength and... um, uh, concentration to do that because of the technical aspect, but actually technical papers are easier to read than than something that ra- raises your emotions. So it wasn't as difficult as you might think, but they needed to get into these. And yes, paper after paper I'm reading because they're trying to get the, the most up-to-date information on any of the viruses on any, that are causing cancer, any of the cancers. Definitely, we were on our way to a cure for cancer. We should have had it in the 70s especially, as I say, using bacteriophage and uh, uh, other methods. Uh, we had it. We know that uh, Pope John XXIII died of stomach cancer, and the envoys were sent there, not in time, but they had a cancer vaccine with them. Remember that word, vaccine, a cancer serum. They were going to give him, try to save his life, but they were too late. So what was so potent that they could have developed something uh, that they might use in a last-minute attempt, you see, to save the Pope's life. Well, we're looking at 
some very advanced technology in working in oncology. We have no doubt in my mind that we could have cured cancer in the 1970s. But you know what? It doesn't make money. When you have whole institutions set up, gigantic cancer research, no, they aren't cancer research. They are cancer treatment centers. And they have their palm trees and their fountains. And I, as I look at that, I think of the despairing people who've plowed all their money into trying to save their loved ones that built these giant, these gorgeous edifices. And that money has been poured into buildings, poured into uh, technologies that are based on three primitive factors. One, to cut it out. Well, if it's a nice, firm tumor, cut it out and it's gone. But then after they cut it out, they almost always do radiation because in their primitive minds, they think that you have to do radiation after cutting something out. Well, it depends on the tumor, believe me, but they usually go and, uh, conduct radiation anyway, and often on top of that, chemo. And, of course, that's cutting it, burning it, and poisoning it. But unfortunately, that it's almost always involves the entire human body or at least such specific uh, parts of it in such a, a dramatic way. It's entirely primitive, and uh, all avenues that uh, that go anywhere else that don't lead into these three primitive area ways of treating cancer are considered illegitimate and not worth following, frankly, because they don't make money. When you've already set up an enormous uh, machine here where, you know, you have like mammograms, you have that you actually have the trucks going from city to city, you know, smashing women's breasts and, and giving them x-rays. And, of course, when any recently we had a doctor protest this and say at least a third of the so-called cancers turn out to be nothing but benign tumors, and yet they've had their breasts cut off before this was understood, um, when we should have been able to use thermograms. Well, thermograms are cheap. Thermography is cheap. You find a hot spot on your breast, and then you look at it. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the primitive idea that we have to do biopsies of everything we're looking at we really have the technology to actually enter any tumor and look at it and, and figure out whether it's cancerous or not, but they still use this quite primitive, in my opinion, biopsy method, which when you pull out and you break into the tumor, you know what? You can shed tumor cells all over the body by doing that. You're opening it up. If it's encapsulated and you bunch into it you know, and you withdraw a needle or whatever, you know what you're getting, or you pull a slice out of it. You've got an open wound there in the cancer, and, you you know, you can fill up around it with lymph, lymphatic matter, with serum, and, uh, of course, it can then um, actually leak into the rest of the body, shed that cancer all over the place. What is going on? Well, it's the same method they've always used. They haven't advanced, only in the sophistication of the chemicals, of the poisons. And the idea that you can eat something or drink something or have it pumped into your veins, and it's going to kill a batch of cancer in your body. What about the rest of your body? Well, those cells, they don't, they don't multiply as quickly. Now, I'll tell you what does multiply as quickly as cancer cells. That's the cells on the hair of your head. That's why all these poor people go bald. It's killing off the cells that, that um, actually multiply most rapidly. Well, guess what? A lot of cells in your body multiply rapidly, like on your fingernails. So what have we got there? We have an extremely primitive situation where 
this makes a lot of money. It's all been set up. It's a huge machine. You have to keep feeding the machine with lots of money. People are being trained to run the machine, and they're not going to get out of the machine. It's too profitable. That's why overseas, like, for example, in Sweden, five universities have gotten together. They're not run by any corporations. Five universities have come together, and they're looking at genetic ways to cure cancer. doesn't make any money, folks, so you're not going to see it here. Now, Judith, when you were developing the uh, fast-acting cancer bioweapon, it wasn't, as I recall, it, it, it wasn't going fast enough, so you came up with a way to include x-rays with it that would speed up right. the cancer. Yes, it's it's remarkable to me that doctors can be right on top of things. I'm, I'm not trying to criticize them, but if you've been working with something a long time, you've been trained a certain way. My advantage was that I hadn't been trained like that. I'd, I'd uh, trained myself. And because of that, um, I had used approaches that they hadn't used. And when I was uh, looking, I had given mice lung cancer, not with ordinary mice. I would use, I eventually had gone to germ-free mice, uh, which were available in Tampa through uh, a Research Incorporated. And I had given uh, funds to them and uh, they had connections with Notre Dame, so it, that's how I, I got access to them. My family at one time was involved with Notre Dame, and uh, to make a long story short, we just loved you know, Notre Dame, and we had given land, and my ancestors had given land to Notre Dame. So I had these connections uh, with Notre Dame. This doctor actually moved to Tampa with his germ-free mice from Notre Dame, and I was in contact with him through my family and everything. He supplied me with germ-free mice. Now, that means they had no contact whatsoever. They had no antibodies in their system. And then on top of that, I x-rayed them. You know, I used x-rays, and that destroyed their immune system. That's how come I could do it. Well, that was a really unusual uh, approach to it. And for some reason, uh, reducing or demolishing the immune system is something that they'd forgotten or not thought about when they're, you know, said, reach an impasse. I said, look, all we have to do is make sure that Castro gets himself put in front of an x-ray machine for whatever reasons you want to get. And if you give him a big dose of x-ray, you know what happens? You develop a dry cough. Or if you just make it look like he's got cancer by putting a few cancer cells in one of his a blood tests that he has, they're going to be terrified. They're going to go back. If you get somebody to get him in front of an x-ray machine a couple of times, he's going to feel so sick, and they're going to be giving him injections. And maybe, the, maybe they'll give him injections, say it's penicillin, just like they did to Jack Ruby, by the way. Mm-hmm. Jack Ruby understood what we were doing. When that poor man, when Julian West came from Chicago, that's the MK Ultraman. He goes and uh, tells the outside world that, Jack Ruby is crazy. Why? Well, we have Al Maddox, the jailer there. I talked to him for hours and got a lot of information from him. He says, that man came in and he gave Jack Ruby some drugs. He said, gave Jack, they were friends, gave Jack some drugs. And all of a sudden, Jack is beating his head against the wall and he's sticking his hand up into trying to kill himself by putting his hand up, unscrew the light bulb, you know, trying to electrocute himself by putting his fingers up into the light socket. And then Julian West, you know, he can inject him with cancer cells, and when Jack Ruby says, I've been injected with cancer cells, nobody's going to believe him because he's out of his mind. That's what they did to Jack Ruby. 
Wow. Well, now tell us about the note that you wrote to Dr. Oshner and how that note represented a turning point in your cancer research in oh. New Orleans. Well, I came to New Orleans not to give people cancer, but to cure them. It says in the newspapers that Judy has been assigned to study how to make cancer more deadly. Now, isn't that something? So I, uh, on top of everything, I already had learned about how to make cancer grow more quickly and, uh, you know, reproduce in animals, um, mice specifically. Now I'm, I'm being trained uh, to try and, and use these formulas and things I learned at Roswell Park and elsewhere to make cancer grow as quickly as it could, especially melanoma. I'm speaking with author and former cancer researcher Judith Ferry Baker. Today's show, The Cancer Bioweapon and Plot to Kill JFK. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So knowing these different things, um, I, um, I find myself in this position um, where what I thought was, well, I still had standards. When I learned that they, uh, I've been told originally there's this one prisoner and that this poor man, he had a problem because um, he, was, he had a terminal cancer. And that's why I was told. Well, I asked Dave Ferry, well, look, I have to go out there and do this blood test on him to determine if the cancer that we injected in him took. And it has to be done within 72 hours. But, Dave, I've got a problem. What kind of cancer does he have? If he has the same kind of cancer we're giving him, I wouldn't be able to tell. And Dave says, just off the cuff, no, he's, you know, he's a killer and all that. Uh, he's going to die anyway. But he's perfectly healthy. You know, we're not going to electrocute him. We're going to kill him with cancer if we can. I was horrified and shocked. I mean, they're taking a man who's absolutely healthy and he's a volunteer. And uh, eventually I realized there had to be more than one. So they were taking these men, these prisoners who were volunteering for cancer research. And if it worked, what we gave them, it would kill them. And they were unaware of it. So I wrote a note to Dr. Oxner. Now, that was forbidden. We were not to have a paper trail. Uh, if you read in uh, Me and Lee, my book, How I Came to Know, Love, and Lose Lee Harvey Oswald, you'll learn how important it was not to have a paper trail. Lee Oswald comes as an observer, for example, when these prisoners are getting injected and when instructions are given to the clinicians on how to take care of the material and keep it alive. He's there because they don't want him to have to uh, read anything he has to hear it orally. He will transmit that information when he hands off the biological weapon to a, a medical contact, give him that information that he needs, nothing written down. Here I wrote a note. Basically, it said something like this, that it's unethical to uh, give a disease that can uh, cause a terminal condition in a patient who uh, does not have such a disease. It's just unethical. And I put it in an envelope and sealed it. And when I, I actually went myself physically to Oxner Clinic, handed it to the nurse there. It was vacation time. This, this is end of August. And the regular nurse there who knew me, she wasn't there. Instead, there was an old woman, and you know, taking her place, obviously, because she was on vacation. And she said, looks at this envelope. She said, well, is this urgent? Because it said it was to Dr. Oxner. I said, well, yes, it is. She opened it up and started to read it over the intercom to Dr. <laughs> Oxner. Oh, my gosh. I got out of there as fast as I could. 
I knew I was dead meat. I did. I knew it. It was over, and of course it was. That man, when he called me on the phone, I, I went right to Dr. Mary's apartment hoping she'd be there. She wasn't. I Dr. Was, Sherman, I you mean? I just wanted to come. Yeah, I wanted, yeah, we called her Dr. Mary. Uh, we didn't use last names, and often we used code names. Like on the phone, Lee was Hector. I didn't use his real name. We did things like that. It was like playing spy, you know? I mean, I didn't realize how serious it all was, not until later. I thought some of this was just to keep things quiet so people wouldn't know what we were doing. And here we're trying to kill a head of state, and I've been drawn into this project. And now I was feeling dreadful. He calls on the phone, Oxner calls over there. I'd gone there hoping that Mary, Dr. Mary, would be a comfort to me, another woman. And he begins cursing at me. Oh, my Oh, dear God. And finally, um, I have to have a meeting with him. And when he calls me in, not long after that, all right, he had to round me up. There were grown men who interned for, for him. They were in the uh, operating room. And if one of them made a mistake or something like that, and he was very pissed off. I'm using bad words because of how bad this was. Oxner had the ability to scream at them in such a way that some of them fainted, literally fainted. This is a man who broke his belt beating, uh, whipping one of his kids, broke his belt on him, broke it. Um, this, this side of Alton Oxner that other people haven't seen, he's also remembered. He was King Rex. He was the most popular man in town. You don't come against a man like that. This man had power. And now I'm standing before him, and his face is red. His, his, his eyes are bulging. His, the anger, uh, he was seeing red. And when he burst into his imprecations against me, I just swore to myself I was going to take it. I was not going to. But boy, when he was finished, he said, you get out of here. And he said, it's lucky you have your teeth in your damned head. And I turned around and left. And my career was over in three minutes, you see, like a boiled egg. And I, I came out, and there's Dave with the car, car that hardly ever would start on time. And Tyra always had a rundown battery anyway. And he, he or something was wrong with the solenoid. I come out there, and I, I started to cry in his arms. It's the only time Dave's ever put his arms around me. But at another point, he would, at an earlier point, he told me I was like the daughter he never had. He was born the same year as my dad, and I was estranged from my father. And here Dave is trying to comfort me. He says, well, it's all over now, isn't it? And I said, yeah, I'm ruined. And they they want me never to see Lee again. I've got to go back to Gainesville, Florida. But not until I do this blood test. They had nobody else on earth who could do it or be trained to do it in time. It had to be done within 72 hours, so Lee would eventually, um, you know, soon drive me out there. And Dr. Oxstream gave me the papers I had to fill out for that stupid blood test. Anyway, it was over. And all the things I wanted to do to help people and Help, help them get cancer cured. I wasn't even allowed to ever, ever, ever get into a lab again. Yet, what happened in New Orleans, and it's very important, when they send me away, 
they send me away in New Orleans, and, and here's what happened. Um, I had to go to Florida, but they said, wait a minute, we've got a problem. If this woman actually, um, reporters are going to notice what happened in New Orleans. How come she's not doing cancer research anymore? So they put me into Peninsular Chem Research, and I was working there as a lab assistant. I was doing lots of tests to check the purity of new chemicals, and some of them were very exotic. I was working with gas chromatography, working with lasers, um, doing all these kinds of tests. After that, though, it was all over, and I was ruined. How horrible. When did you first become aware of a plot to kill the president, and how did you become aware of this plan? Well, that that happened early on. I mean, they're trying to get me to participate in creating a biological weapon against Castro. And when I walk into Dr. Sherman's apartment, she asked me to come in. There sits David Ferry. Uh, by the way, my, I have a, what they call a remarkable memory. Uh, it's, it's right in the book there. You can see that she opens the door, and then I come in, and there is David Ferry sitting at a table. And why I mention that is that Dr. Sherman did not have a dining room. Right away when you walked in, if she's going to have a, a meal where a sit-down meal and not at a counter, she had a table in the living room. And I could remember the layout of her apartment and everything. Anyway, there's Dave sitting there, and um, at first they talked about Mount Everest, so you can get the date right away from that. Uh, Mount Everest had been conquered that day. Or... So, and then they turned the conversation to some uh, political material, and finally uh, they start talking to me about a man. They say, this man is going, he's in real trouble because he thinks he's the president of the United States, and he has power, that he's a real president, and his baby brother is causing all kinds of trouble for the mafia, and he's causing all kinds of trouble um, for the oil people, and he said he's going to smash the CIA into a thousand pieces, and he's going to retire Hoover in a couple of years, and Hoover doesn't want to retire. In fact, Hoover would go on to become director for life under Lyndon Johnson, and they make this list of all the enemies that Kennedy has. You say, you know, what might stop that? Well, what would stop that? What if we got Cuba back? What if Castro was killed? Do you realize the same people who are engaged in all this talk about killing Kennedy, they all want Cuba back because they have interests, and mafia has interests. Uh, they forget all about Bobby, at least for a while, you know, getting rid of him, because they want their casinos back. They want their prostitutes back. They want their drug rings back. CIA would be able to move in and get a lot of glory by you know, securing the capital and uh, subduing and getting rid of all the communists. That would make Hoover very happy as well. He, he could uh, round them all up, and whether they were communists or not, you know, and, and uh, make a show of it and show how, you know, how powerful he was. We have all these United Fruit Standard Fruit interests. We have assets there in Cuba, including oil refineries of interest to the oil guys who were losing all that. So if we can just get Cuba back, they're not going to get rid of, of Kennedy. They're going to be fighting over Cuba. They're going to be dividing Cuba among themselves. So this is how I was persuaded that it was a good idea to kill Castro. Frankly, it sounded pretty good to me. So then it sounds like Dr. Mary Sherman was aware all along of a, of a 
plot to yes. assassinate Kennedy. Uh, well, all along, I think it all developed. Uh, they learned by at least March when uh, we have all of a sudden uh, a... You have to understand that Dr. Oxner, who hated Kennedy, was in a peculiar position uh, a year earlier, in 1962. The man was in charge of Kennedy's visit to New Orleans, of all people. He was, Dr. Mm. Oxner. He learned so much about the motorcade. He learned about Kennedy's uh, secret uh, medical problems. We know that Kennedy's doctor often, often sat in the car with him You'd be the third man, the man in the middle seat, the man where you wouldn't have had a bullet going and hitting Kennedy in the throat. If that man had been sitting there, he would have hit, hit his doctor. And his doctor was placed in a car way, way back, far, far from John F. Kennedy. Mm-hmm. We know that Oxner learned everything about the motorcade and, and how it's set up and the situations. He could do it because he was the doctor and he was the one who would... Uh, have to know about Kennedy's medical conditions and needs, uh, potential problems, and so on. He is the one in charge of that motorcade. Did you know that, of that visit? So there we've got connections. We have doctors talking to doctors. We know that Dr. Oxner's good friend is Clay Shaw, uh, has all these interests for the international trademark. Think about the international trademark, please, for a moment, because... Clay Shaw of the International Trademark. We have Juan Valdez, worked for the International Trademark, is the first one to report that Mary Sherman is dead. He smells smoke. Well, you know, that, that something's wrong at Mary Sherman's apartment. And he calls. Who does he call? Who do you call when you have fire? Well, the fire department, you would think. Well, no, he called the police department, which tells me a lot right there. He called the police department. He's of the International Trademark. We have... John F. Kennedy is on his way to the International Trade Mart, and Clay Shaw, of course, was involved in this uh, project to help kill Castro. So we have the situation of the death of Castro uh, would have stopped the death of Kennedy. And Mary Sherman had learned a lot of this. She was anti-Castro to the extent she was helping some of these guerrillas out there. They're being trained. She brought the medical supplies. She actually was a contributor to INCA, the Information Council of the Americas. It was run by Oxner and Ed Butler, and they were sending out propaganda all over Central South America and Mexico, and these were truth tapes. They were propaganda tapes, helped, uh, partially sponsored by the CIA. I could go on and on of how deep they were involved with CIA activities. Now, would Lee Harvey Oswald have confided in Dr. Mary Sherman about assassination plans against the president yes, uh, in, in Chicago, uh, uh, the Chicago business, and how they saved President oh, Kennedy right, in Chicago? Yes, uh, yes we'll, we'll finish with that. The Chicago plot, the way it looks now, with Mary's many contacts that she had in Chicago for years, people she trusted, also the fact that she knew uh, people who were connected with the CIA and the FBI. There's no doubt about that. And we have someone who would have talked, and I think that's, of course, what got her killed on the 21st of July when she was found murdered the same day the Warren Commission came to get unsolicited testimonies. So we have that situation. She had the ability to uh, get information and uh, connected with, also with David Ferry, put the two together. That was quite a bit of asset because David, of course, is working for the mafia with Carlos Marcello. And, of course, he had all these contacts there with, like, Sam Giancana and so on up there in uh, the Chicago area. 
and here's the plot to kill Kennedy. It's afoot, and the information is there. Lee Oswald learns about it because they can't do that directly. Lee takes it upon himself to make the calls, to make the decision to tell them they arrest our men there. We have Abraham Bolden still in Chicago now in that same area who tells us that it was a man named Lee who gave them the information. You mean the information to prevent an assassination of the president in Chicago? Yes. Uh, just one, one last uh, clarification. Do you think that okay. Dr. Mary Sherman was the target of the sabotage of the linear particle accelerator? This happened the day that the Warren Commission came. I think who she was, but unfortunately for all of us, you know, even though Dave Ferry and Lee, and of course, eventually were also murdered and killed others too, she cares about her country and she wants to save the president if she can, you bet that something had to be done about Mary Sherman. Judith Ferry Baker, thank you so much. Well, I'm very pleased that I have been able to at least speak with you for a little while. God bless you, and maybe we can talk again. I've been speaking with Judith Ferry Baker. Today's show has been The Cancer Bioweapon and Plot to Kill JFK. Judith Ferry Baker is an author, teacher, and an artist, and was once a promising young science prodigy who hoped one day to find a cure for cancer. Recruited to New Orleans in the spring of 1963 to do cancer research, she instead was assigned to an underground laboratory project to develop a cancer-causing bioweapon. Early on in the summer of 1963, during her work in New Orleans, she learned of plans to kill the president. She is the author of two nonfiction personal memoirs, Me and Lee, How I Came to Know, Love, and Lose, Lee Harvey Oswald, and David Ferry, Mafia Pilot, Participant in Anti-Castro Bioweapon Plot, Friend of Lee Harvey Oswald, and Key to the JFK Assassination. Visit meandlee.com, judithbaker.blogspot.com, and david hyphenfairy.com. That's meandlee.com, judithbaker.blogspot.com, and david-fairy.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner. To make comments or order copies of shows, email me at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Visit our transitional website at gunsandbutter.org to sign up for our email list. Follow us on Twitter at G&B Radio. That's G-A-N-D-B-R-A-D-I-O.